afterwards. Yeah, yeah. See this time. So I'll be. Uh, I need to take a monitor and tell him. I'll help you with that. Right. No worries. Keep it. slideshow that one. Right, excellent. Well, good morning, everybody. It's nice to be here. Thank you, Matthew, for that nice introduction earlier. I mean, with an introduction like that, I can't actually wait to hear myself speak this morning. <laughs> so, um, uh, yeah, it's a real privilege for us also to be here this morning and to come and minister to you guys concerning the topic of origins from God's Word. Now, every time I do this presentation, I can't help but think back to this little girl. Maybe you've heard of her. One day she went to her mother and she asked her mother, Mom, where do humans really come from? You know, what is the true origin of humans? And her mother said, my child, it's actually very easy to explain. If you go and read in the book of Genesis, it says, in the beginning, God created Adam and Eve, and that's where everybody comes from. And quite happy, she left her mom, went straight to her father in the garage, and she said, Dad, where do humans come from? And her father said, my child, it's actually very easy to explain. If you have a look at what the world's leading scientists have discovered up to now, it's pretty clear that we come from the apes and the monkeys and over millions of years of evolution, we've actually now changed into human beings. Now, when the little girl heard that, immediately, like in a state of panic, straight back to her mother in the kitchen, and she said, Mom, I don't understand. Why is it that when I ask you concerning the origin of humans, you say we come from Adam and Eve, but Dad says we come from the apes and the monkeys? And again, a mother looked at her and she smiled and she said, oh, my child, again, very easy to explain. You have to remember, I was referring to my side of the family and your dad was referring to his side. <laughs> now, that's just to start things off on a lighter note this morning. But hopefully you can also see the seriousness in that joke. And it is that people today have questions concerning the topic of origins. They've got questions concerning what the Bible teaches us, how everything came into existence, what the world has to say about everything came into existence, how the Bible and science meet up in the middle. So hopefully by the end of this morning's presentation, you will have a better understanding concerning the topic of origins. And hopefully you will also see that there's a clear, definite connection between the book of Genesis and the gospel message. And that the gospel message actually already starts in the book of Genesis. Now, I've spoken to a lot of Christians over the past 24 years concerning this debate that exists today between, you know, was the literal six-day creation account or millions of years of evolution that occurred. And usually, most of those Christians are quick to point out to me that, you know, Peter, this is really not such an important topic for us as Christians. You know, how everything came into existence. It's like a side issue in our faith. You know, maybe there's some of you thinking that. Because, you know, what's more important for Christians is to focus on Jesus. Put your faith and trust in Jesus. That's the most important part. Now, we don't have a problem with that. You know, we want people to put their faith and trust in Christ. But we want people to trust in Jesus because God's word is speaking the truth. Literally, from the very first verse in the Bible. So I'm quickly going to show you what is currently happening in America among the Christian youth in that country. And what we usually say is where America is today, South Africa will be tomorrow. Now this is a research study that was done for the first time more than 20 years ago by a group called George Barner Research. Since then they've repeated the study year after year and they basically get every time the same results. What they discovered is that up to 70% of Christian children brought up in a Christian home and in the church, will walk away from their faith after they leave home. 
So do you realize that is 70% of children who's, be, who's been putting their faith and trust in Jesus their entire lives. Then they leave their parents' homes, they're into the world, and they turn their back on Christ. They stop reading the Bible and they don't go to church anymore. So these people said, wow, what is going on in America? Let's do a bit of further research to see if we can find out what's the main cause for this phenomenon. And can you guess what they discovered is currently the number one reason for this phenomenon happening there in America? It's because the kids in America are being taught evolution at school. So to the children, it sounds like as if science has disproven the Bible, where? Genesis chapter 1. And then they think to themselves, wow, if, if the Bible has been disproven in the first chapter, where can we start to trust the Bible that it speaks the truth? Can you really trust the Bible further on? And people, it is literally currently an epidemic in America, how those kids are turning into atheists. You see, in America, they've been taught evolution now for more than 60 years already in those schools. So it's basically like three generations that has passed through that education system. Here in South Africa, we are currently busy with our first generation. It is now exactly 16 years since evolution has been introduced in the high school biology curriculum. So if we want to prevent that our kids follow the same route as those American children, it's time for us to do something about it and get equipped with answers when it gets to the topic of origins. And then quickly also, I just quickly want to refer to the word evolution. Now, you know, it's a word that you've all heard over the years, specifically through the secular media. Now, basically at its core, the word evolution means change or change over time. Now, people, I believe that change is happening in nature because we can observe it. But the kind of change happening out there today, that's not evolution that's happening. Now, what do I mean by that? The world teach us there's two kinds of evolution, two kinds of change. Now, we don't have a problem with the first kind. It is known as change within a kind. You know, the kids know it as microevolution. It's basically where you start off, for instance, with a parent population of butterflies. Over the years, you breed with them. You get a lot of young ones. And after a couple of generations, you end here with two daughter populations or even, you know, two different species. And you can see there's definite change that occurred. Coloration, maybe body size changed. But the key here is we started off with a butterfly and we ended with butterflies. So it's still the same kind of a creature, not species. That's a man-made term. And this kind of change is actually what we expect to find in nature because that's what the Bible teaches us. Ten times in Genesis chapter 1. Ten times it says that God created the creatures according to their kinds, to breed according to their kinds. So we expect that dogs will give us dogs, cats will give cats, and kangaroos will give kangaroos. So no problem there. But now the world comes to us, specifically the young people, and they tell the people that if you give this kind of change just enough time, just give it millions of years, you will be able to change that butterfly into something like a moth. From one kind can go to another kind. And this is what children are currently being taught today in school, macroevolution, where people believe all life go back to a simple-celled organism, and over these alleged millions of years, one kind changed into another kind from simple into more and more complex creatures. And that kind of change has never, ever been observed to happen in nature, where one kind is changing into another kind. That's why we are against this kind of change. But unfortunately, that's the only thing that children here today in school, then university... Then they go home in the afternoons, and it's the turn of the secular media. 
documentary programs like National Geographic, for instance, very pro-evolution. Radio stations like you with Radio Sonder Geloof, Ach, Bro, Grense, very pro-evolution. Newspapers, movies, it's just the one side of the story we're exposed to. And you know, the children are sitting at home thinking, we're nothing special. We're just accidents of nature. Highly evolved animals, highly evolved apes, that's basically all we are. But do you know what is the key message that gets stuck with the young ones? The Bible isn't true. You can't trust the Bible. The Bible has been disproven a long time ago. The Bible's full of lies. You see, people don't realize that there is actually an alternative to the theory of evolution. And it is called biblical creation. But unfortunately, not a lot of people are currently being exposed to this kind of information. You know, the stuff that you guys are going to hear this morning. So that's where our organization fits into the picture. Creation Ministries International is a faith-funded, non-profit organization. We currently have seven offices around the world, seven different countries. And primarily, we're an information ministry. So we produce information to help people to defend the authority and the accuracy of scriptures from the very first verse in the Bible. And that information that we get, we get it out into different resources that we produce, like books and children books and there's also a magazine that we've been giving out now for more than 40 years worldwide. And the idea with those resources is that people will get a hold of it for themselves and equip themselves with answers. Yeah, specifically parents. Because if parents are equipped concerning this topic, later on they can go and equip their children. Later on their grandchildren. And show them what's written in the Bible is truth and you can trust it. And that's basically what the Bible commands us to do. In 1 Peter 3 verse 15, it says, Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. So one of our main resources is, of course, our website. Very easy to remember. The web address is just called creation.com. And on that website, you will find more than 40 years of creation information. So that's how long the ministry has been going. So all you need to do is you go to the search engine, top right corner, and there you just go and type in the question you've always wanted an answer to, you've always wondered about. Stuff like, where on earth did Cain get a wife? Where do dinosaurs fit into the Bible? Where do all the different so-called races come from if the Bible says everybody goes back to Adam and Eve? How do these dating methods work? Anything you can think of. Just type it in there. And then you will see there are over 14,000 articles that we've written over the past 40 years addressing these kinds of questions that we've received. Those articles are all for free. So you can go and read it, download it onto your computer, even forward it to your friends and family. And in such a way, use our website as a resource to reach people more effectively with the gospel message. Another method we have to get answers out to people is via our electronic newsletter. Now, we call our newsletter an InfoBite, and the idea with the InfoBite is really to keep people up to date with the latest claims made by the evolutionists every day in the secular media. Now, if they dig up another ape man one of these days somewhere in Africa, within a couple of days, our guys will come together, and then they will write an easy-to-understand article from a biblical, scientific perspective so that you can make sense of these kinds of evidences. And currently, we have 12 PhD scientists that's working for us full-time, around the clock, doing our research and writing articles like this. So if you are maybe sitting here this morning thinking, yeah, maybe I should get an email like that from time to time just to keep up to date with things, then we've got a, a good news for you. We are going to circulate forms like this, and all you need to do if you want to receive the email, just fill in your name and surname, 
postal code and email address, and then we will put you on our list. Now, I promise you, we are not going to flood your inbox with emails. It's like mostly two at the most per month that we send out. And if you don't want to receive it anymore, at the end of each email, there is the opportunity where you can then just unsubscribe. So there's two people that's going to help me. They can to dish it out like you have to collect the borky. So just send it down the row and towards the back, please. And if the, you, the board reach you and you've already signed up, just put it in the row in the middle there or just indicate to them because they have to take it in. We are going to use it again at the end of the presentation. So while you are busy doing that, I will just carry on with the presentation and then we save a bit of time. So when we look at the topic of origins and we start off with the Bible, so we only read Genesis chapter 1. We read it like a child. We believe it like a child. We don't listen to what the world has to say concerning millions of years, ape men, stuff like that. We only read the Bible. Then the Word tells us that God made everything out of nothing by just speaking. And He did it in six literal 24-hour days. That's like the big picture we get there in Genesis 1. But if that is true, then it means that dinosaurs were created on day 6 together with Adam and Eve. Not so? And that dinosaurs lived in the Garden of Eden. So that's what the Bible teaches. If we have a look at what the world, what it teaches us concerning the topic of origins, it's this millions of years of macroevolution that occurred where all life forms go back to a simple celled organism and they change from one kind into another kind. So clearly, right from the start, you can see there's a clear contradiction to what the Bible has to say concerning how everything came into existence and what the world has to say. Now, I seeing that I believe you all know what it says in Genesis chapter 1, I'm going to start off this morning with what science has to say concerning this topic. Then we are going to come back to the Bible, see what the Word has to say about this topic. We will compare the two at the end of the presentation, and then if there's time, I'll give an opportunity, and then if you maybe have a couple of questions for me, then I will see if I can give you a proper answer to that. So if we start off with science, now, what exactly do I mean by science? What is real science? If you look it up in the dictionary, it's actually a very easy to understand, simple definition, what science is. Science is knowledge that you acquire through observations and experiments. It is that simple. In other words, did you know that proper scientific research can only be done in the present? Because you can only make observations in the present. You can only set up experiments in the present. You can only repeat your experiments in the present or set up controls for your experiments in the present. We cannot go back into the past to set up an experiment. We cannot go back even to yesterday to go and have a look at what happened there. Do you agree? All right, this kind of science, we refer to it as experimental science. And as you heard, this is the kind of science that I studied for six years of my life at the University of the Free State. Studied zoology, got a master's degree in that. And then I became a high school biology teacher, and I went to teach children how to do proper scientific research. Make your observation, do your experiment, repeat your experiments, etc. So our organization, we are not against science. We love science. This kind of science that's done in the present. Because, you see, there's another kind of science that's also doing the rounds out there today that specifically children are being exposed to. And it is what we call historical science. It's kind of like a forensic science because it's when you look at evidence in the present, for instance, fossils, and then we try to figure out, I wonder what happened there in the past to lead to what I have here with me in the present. Now, speaking of fossils, I'm going to ask you a quick question now, and please shout out the answer if you have the answer. 
who can tell me where do we find fossils today? Where do they exist? In the past or present? Yeah, it's always this confusion when I ask the question. No, I don't know. All right. I'm going to repeat the question, frame it a bit differently, and then let's see if the reaction is maybe a bit differently. Now, I brought a real fossil along with me this morning. Can everybody see it? Right, this specific fossil that I'm holding here in my hand, who can tell me, where do we find this fossil? Where does it exist? Does it exist in the past or here in the present? Oh, now, everybody's saying present. Can you see how you've already been indoctrinated by the world? to think that fossils exist in the past. The creature lived in the past. It died in the past, got fossilized in the past. But today we sit with the evidence in the present. Did you know all fossils on earth exist in the present? Did you know that all evidence on earth exists in the present? We don't have the past. Only history can tell us what happened in the past. But the moment people come up with these stories about what they think happened in the past, they're invoking their belief system, what they believed happened there, you know, things that they didn't observe. And we basically sit today with exactly the same situation in court cases. You know, in any court case, there's always two sides to the story. That guy is either guilty or innocent. And those two legal teams come to the courtroom with basically exactly the same evidence which they collected there on the crime scene, but they come with different stories, different interpretations about what they believed happened there in the past. And at the end of the day, the judge has to decide whose interpretation best fits with the evidence. And that's basically what you are going to do this morning. You know, this morning you are the judge. Your whole life you've heard what the evolutionists have to say concerning the topic of origins. This morning we have an opportunity to share a bit of information with you. And then you have to decide for yourself whose interpretation makes best sense of the evidence. Okay, up to now, this morning, I think you've already learned a couple of new things, hopefully. Now, we are going to use that now to look at an example that the world shows us quite frequently to try and convince us that this earth is millions and billions of years old. And that is, of course, something like the Grand Canyon in America. Now, when you look at the Grand Canyon, now, the first thing that should come to mind when you look at that canyon is, but wait a minute, nobody was there in the past to see how that canyon formed. Do you agree? In other words, how that Grand Canyon came into existence has to be interpreted. And it gets interpreted today by what people believed happened in the past. The same is true for those rock layers, how they were formed. You know, there's also an interpretation for that on what people believed happened in the past. Now the story more or less goes like this. The evolutionists tell us that each one of those fine, thin, sedimentary rock layers in that rock wall was basically laid down over a period of a year or something along those lines. So when they look at these millions of fine rock layers, one on top of another, these people believe that they are looking at millions of years of Earth's history. And that's literally where the idea of millions of years first started. It was towards the end of the 1700s that geologists for the first time ever started speaking in terms of millions of years. Long before things like radiometric dating methods were invented, carbon-14 dating methods, and there are problems with those dating methods. They are full of all sorts of assumptions. We have material on it. 
But just to quickly show you where the idea of millions of years first started. It started there uh, in about 200 years ago when people believed that rock layers will lay down slowly over millions of years. But now the interesting thing is the following, and it is that the great founding fathers of modern science, and it's famous people like Sir Isaac Newton, Louis Pasteur, and those guys, in their days, about two, three hundred years ago, they also saw canyons, they also saw rock layers, but a guy like Newton never looked at rock layers and saw millions of years in rock layers. When Newton looked at rock layers, he always told himself, yep, those rock layers are only a few thousand years old because Newton believed that those rock layers and that canyon was formed during Noah's flood about four and a half thousand years ago. But today, we look at the same rock layers that Newton saw. And what's usually the first thing that comes to mind when you look at rock layers? Whoa, look how old that is, man. That is like millions of years. Not so? Why is that happening? Why do we see millions of years in rock layers, but Newton always just saw thousands of years in rock layers? What has changed since Newton time times up to today, over the last about 200 years? Because the evidence didn't change. It's exactly the same rock layers. But do you know what has changed here on earth? Our mindset, our way of thinking. We've absolutely been indoctrinated and being brainwashed by the secular media and education institutions that's trying to convince us that rock layers are proof positive of millions of years. And that's currently happening to children, grandchildren, in schools and universities. Now, when people look at rock layers, usually the first thing, there's two things that will come up in the discussion. The one will be the millions of years, and the second thing, of course, will be fossils the remains of dead things, because we find these fossils in those rock layers. So let's first have a look at what the world teaches us, how fossils form. Now, this is a typical textbook illustration of fossilization, where the world tells us that when a creature like this crocodile dies in water, it will sink to the bottom of the river or the lake or the dam, and then gradually it will get covered with these sedimentary rock layers. And then the textbook says, over millions of years, Look at that word. It says these rock layers will harden. Now tell me, did somebody sit there with a notebook and taking notes for millions of years? What's going on here? Of course not. So how do they know this? And then they say, as time went by, uh, by means of uh, erosion, wind erosion or water erosion, those upper rock layers will wash away or it gets blown away. That will expose the fossil and that is how we find the fossils today. Right. Let's again have a look at this explanation, but from a more critical perspective, because what you see here on the screen, is that what we observe happening today in nature? Because what happens to dead things that die in water? Where do they go? Fish, dead fish in a dam. Where do dead fish go? Do they sink to the bottom? Where do they go? They float. Dead things bloat and float. And when things float on the surface of water, they're exposed to scavengers that will start to eat them, and they will start to decompose and rot away, and there will be basically nothing left to get fossilized. Even the bones that sink down to the bottom, there at the bottom are invertebrates like crabs, bacteria. You get worms that only eat bones that will literally break those bones down to dust. So that is not how you form a fossil at all. If you want to turn a creature into a fossil, for instance, this goldfish, 
What you need to do with that goldfish is you need to go and bury it rapidly with the right cementing conditions. So in an instance, we go and dump a lot of ground sediment on top of Goldie. There she is completely covered, not exposed to scavengers that can start to eat her. She's lying there intact as a whole, exposed to a minimum amount of oxygen and bacteria. So the decomposition process will be much slower. And if we have the right conditions in those sediments, you know, the right pressure, temperature, moisture, etc., minerals, you can actually change that creature pretty rapidly into a fossil. And you know, when we go to the fossil record, we actually find evidence that creatures were buried rapidly in the past. Here, for instance, is one of a fossilized fish. Tail is on the left, head is on the right, but look at its mouth. It is busy swallowing a smaller fish. So that guy, you know, got buried during his lunch break. That's how quickly it happened. Here's another one. This is of a female ichthyosaur. Now, it's like a reptilian dolphin. They're extinct today. Head is on the left, tail is on the right. And we know that is a female. Why? Because she's busy giving birth to a young one. And the other young ones got fossilized on her inside. In other words, during the labor process, she got buried. So that's, that's pretty rapid, don't you say? But you see, we are not only by, uh, being taught by the world today that it takes millions of years for these things to form. We are also being told by the world that things like fossils are millions of years old. But again, when we go to the fossil record today and we do proper scientific research, we actually find evidence that even dinosaur fossils are relatively young. In 2005, Dr. Mary Schweitzer got the shock of her life when she discovered soft tissue in a dinosaur fossil. Now, she's an American paleontologist, and they dug up a T-Rex in Montana, America, with a transportation process back to the laboratory. They had to break the upper two leg bones of the dinosaur, but it was just too big and too heavy to fit into the helicopter. So they broke it in half, flew that skeleton out bit by bit, and then the idea was back in the laboratory to just go and glue those leg bones back together again. But before they did that, they said to each other, you know what? Nowhere in the world are people going around breaking open dinosaur fossils to see what they look like on the inside. Because, I mean, dinosaur fossils are just too valuable to break. So here we have this unique opportunity to first go and have a look at what this thing looks like on the inside. So they grabbed their microscopes, they had a look there on the inside, and then they came across stuff that looked like sinews, blood vessels, blood cells, and Dr. Schweitzer said those things were still flexible and resilient. And when you stretch it out, it returned to its original shape. She said that if you smell the inside of that fossil bone, it smells like rotten meat. That's how fresh that fossil was. Now, she, of course, couldn't believe what she discovered. So she did her experiment 17 times over just to make sure she really discovered soft tissue. Now, why was this such a huge find? This stuff is primarily made out of proteins. And we all know that proteins of dead things do not last very long. You know, a dead cat or a sheep or a dog or whatever, they, they tend to rot away quickly. So how is it possible to still find soft, stretchy proteins in a fossil that's allegedly 65 million years old? You see, logically speaking, it just doesn't make any sense, does it? So that's why our organization believes that that fossil is maybe at absolute maximum only something like a thousand years old. Maybe only a few hundred years even, but definitely not millions of years. That's just totally impossible. And since that discovery in 2005, 
Scientists worldwide have discovered soft tissue in dinosaur fossils more than 60 times already. They're actually going around museums, breaking it open to see what they find on the inside. And still up to today, they cannot explain it away. Now, most of what I've shown you and what we've spoken up to about this morning actually comes from the magazine that we publish. As I said, it's an international magazine, goes out to more than 110 countries currently worldwide. We've been publishing it for more than 40 years. It's a 56-page, full-color, glossy magazine, currently the magazine in the world that's being read the most when it gets to the topic of biblical creation versus evolution. And we pride our magazine that our magazine do not, does not have one single paid advertisement on one of its pages because we really believe that each one of our pages should be used to the absolute maximum to get this kind of information out into the world. Also in the middle of the magazine, each magazine, there's a whole section dedicated to the smaller children. So again, just to save a bit of time, I will give you at the end of the presentation an opportunity and you can subscribe to our family magazine. But now I have a question for the audience. And I actually gave the answer away at the beginning. So I want to see who's been paying attention. I want to know from you. Up to now, we've seen that, you know, fossils form rapidly in the past. Those creatures were buried rapidly. We also saw that fossils are not that old as the world wants us to think they are, that fossils are actually relatively young. So can you maybe think of an historical event somewhere in the Bible which couldn't explain to us the massive amount of sedimentary rock layers that we find today all over the earth? Now remember, sedimentary rock layers are laid down by water. There's a clue for you. And we find fossils in those rock layers. So can you maybe think of a worldwide water event somewhere in the Bible? <laughs> yeah? The flood. I'm so worried that somebody will one day say Jonah and the fish because uh, people's Bible knowledge is not that good anymore. Of course, it's the account of Noah's flood. Now, there's a lot of people today on earth that do not believe there was a literal worldwide global flood you will be shocked to know how many theologians, not only in the world, but in South Africa, doesn't believe it anymore. They actually tell me over the telephone that they don't believe it. When I phone them to hear if we can do a presentation like this at their congregation, that guy tells me on the other side, you know, I must just realize this is like a mythical event. This is like, a, like just an account, a story, a beautiful story. The creation accounts, it's like a mythical poetry, stuff like that. Now, with all honesty, you know, towards theologians, if they start saying things that differ from what God says in his word, I tend not to listen much further to people like that. I go back to the Bible and see what the word teach. And what does the Bible say when it gets to the account of Noah's flood? It says all the high hills and high mountains back in those days were covered with water. So according to the Bible, it was a literal worldwide globe covering event. If you want to know what happened to the water afterwards, just ask me at the end, simple explanation for what happened to the water. So that's what the Bible has to say. Now, if this really happened, like the Bible said it did, what would we then today expect to find as evidence for something like this that happened? I think we'd expect to find like sedimentary rock layers that to lay down worldwide by water with fossils in those rock layers. Okay, you maybe guess what we find today, anywhere on earth, when we start digging into the ground. We find sedimentary rock layers that were laid down all over the earth by water worldwide with fossils in those rock layers. Did you know that God took four whole chapters in the book of Genesis just on this one event? And I think if God takes four chapters in the Bible on any event, I think he thinks it's pretty important stuff. 
And I think he wants to communicate it to us that, you know, we should pay a bit more attention to what the Bible says there. But what's usually the first thing that comes to your mind when you look at a fossil? What do you think of usually, the first thing? Millions of years. Now, this is the evidence of millions of years. Not so? Because, again, that's how we've been trained by the world to think. But that's not what should happen at all. The next time you look at a fossil, any fossil, because we believe the vast majority of them will lay down with Noah's flood, this one probably also. So when you look at a fossil the next time, do you know what should come to mind? You should look at that fossil and then say to yourself, wow, this fossil is the evidence of God's judgment on sin. Rock layers is the evidence of God's judgment on sin. Because this is what happened four and a half thousand years ago when man was so rebellious against God that he wiped them off the face of the earth. Saved eight people together with those animals. Started over. And fossils and rock layer are the evidence of that judgment. Now again, very interesting. Up to about 200 years ago, most people in the Western world believed it. Most theologians, most scientists believed in a literal worldwide flood. They believed that God created in six literal 24-hour days out of nothing. But ever since then, people, specifically Christians, you know, started to play around with the idea of, yeah, but maybe God created by means of evolution over millions of years. And I'm this morning the first one to admit that's what I believed. For the first three and a half years of my university career, I was absolutely convinced that evolution is a fact. I mean, it has to be true. Just look at all the evidence for evolution. The professor says it's the truth. The textbooks say it's the truth. TV says it's the truth. Who am I to disagree? So I had no problem with you know, trying to reconcile evolution with the Bible because I still believe the Bible is also true. But what I did was what most people do in, in that is we go to God's word and we start to reinterpret the Bible so that it fits in with man's ideas. You know, those creation days. Who's to say it's literal six 24-hour creation days? Doesn't the Bible also say for God a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day? But do you know what we do in effect when we start doing that? We start placing man's ideas, man's theories, and science on a higher authority than God's word. And you can't do that because isn't the Bible the ultimate authority for us here on earth? So what we should do is we should get into the habit to always start our thinking from the Bible. You know, it doesn't matter which topic is being discussed, whether it is the topic of origins, things like abortion, euthanasia, homosexuality, whatever. We first go to the Bible and have a look at what God has to say concerning that topic. Then we have a look at what man has to say about that topic. And if the things that humans are saying differ from what it says in God's word, then human beings are wrong. And then humans have to change their ideas so that it fits in with God's word. And that's what I'm going to do now in the second half of this presentation. I'm only going to use the Bible as a point of reference to see what God's word tells us how this universe came into existence. So when we go back to the creation week, we see that at the end of the creation week, God looked at everything he made, and he said everything was not good, but very good. You know, in the Hebrew context, it actually means you couldn't create it any better. It was absolutely perfect. It was paradise originally. So what the Bible says is that at the end of the creation week, there was no such thing as death, pain, sickness, disease, suffering, cancer, no, there were no Blue Bull supporters. <laughs> this perfect creation that we live in. I don't know if you realize this, but God actually went to Adam and Eve and he created and he commanded them to only eat of the plant material. 
So humans were vegetarian originally. Who's the first guy in the Bible who was allowed to eat meat? Okay, ask me at the end. Simple answer there. And then the next verse, God went to all the animals and he gave them the same command. They were only allowed to eat plant material. So at the end of the creation week, there were no carnivores, no meat eaters. Everything ate plant material. But today, we look at God's creation out there, and would you say, that is still a very good creation we have? I don't think so. Everywhere you look, it's just death, pain, disease, suffering, bloodshed. What on earth is going on? Now, don't get me wrong, there's still a picture of God's goodness and of God's design, which is still visible in nature today, but it's been marred by all these terrible things we see all around us every day. So again, let's start our thinking from the Bible to see if we can get to a logical answer to why the world is currently in the state that it is. Can you think of an historical event somewhere in the Bible that could explain to us about what happened to that perfect good creation that God gave us originally and then changed it to the one that we're stuck with today? Anybody? The fall. When they ate of the fruit, God told Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. So today... We live in a cursed, broken, fallen world. That's not how God gave it to us. That's not how we ever wanted things to turn out. We humans brought this mess upon ourselves. And God actually warned us in the previous chapter of Genesis what will happen if we eat of that fruit. He told Adam, for the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, again, in the Hebrew context, it doesn't mean he would have dropped dead on that specific day. It means... Adam, from the day that you eat of that fruit, you will start to die. And you will carry on dying and carry on dying until you are eventually completely, totally dead. In other words, Adam and Eve and all the living creatures started to age from that day forth. Everything was originally created to live forever. There was no death. And that's what's busy happening to all of us. We're all busy aging. We're all busy dying because of the event that happened there in the garden. And also, this is not just a spiritual event that occurred in the garden, a, a spiritual death. This was a literal death that happened. Because we all know that verse in Genesis 3 where God told Adam, I created you from dust, and to dust again you shall return. You know, then in the New Testament, Paul comes along, and then he confirms to us this historical event that happened in the garden. He writes in Romans 5 verse 20, uh, 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. That's the origin of physical death. It comes from sin. Physical death is the evidence that God is serious about sin. The Bible never separates the two. Throughout the whole Bible, always, it's sin and death, sin and death, sin and death. But it wasn't only man that got cursed on that fateful day. It was actually God's whole creation. The universe got cursed. Paul writes in Romans 8 verse 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And those childbirth pains, we can feel it every day of our lives. This is a broken, fallen, cursed world that we are currently living in. So what the Bible teaches us concerning how this universe came into existence is the following. It says that at the beginning, there was no such thing as death, pain, disease, suffering, bloodshed, cancer, none of that. But then we humans arrived on the scene, we rebelled against God, sin came into creation for the very first time. And what's the consequence of sin? Death, pain, disease, suffering, bloodshed, and all those terrible things that we brought upon ourselves. 
And according to the Bible's genealogies, this event occurred only a few thousand years ago. That physical death and sin came into this creation for the very first time. But this is, of course, directly contradictory to what children are currently being taught in school today. Because what are they being taught? Evolution. And what does the theory of evolution say? For millions of years, there's always been death, pain, disease, suffering, and bloodshed in this creation. I mean, you need those things if you want to develop from simple creatures to more and more complex organisms. But just think for yourself, if this is true, if evolution is true, then it means there was physical death in this creation before Adam was created. Not so? There was physical death in this creation before sin came into the world. And that's directly contradictory to what we just read there in the book of Romans. And then again, further on in the New Testament, again, Paul comes along and then he explains to us how we can actually only make sense of Christ's death on the cross in the light of a literal creation account. He writes in 1 Corinthians 15, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And again, not just the spiritual death that it refers to here, but a physical death. Because just think of it, then Jesus only had to come and die spiritually for us and be raised spiritually from the grave. But we know it's a physical death and a physical resurrection he went through. And then a couple of verses further, Paul says that the first man, Adam, became a living being, and then the last Adam, referring here to Jesus Christ, became a life-giving spirit. So here we have the two Adams. There's the first one in the garden a couple of thousand years ago. There's the tree in the garden. And then about 4,000 years later, Jesus Christ, the last Adam, not the second one, the last Adam. And once again, look at this, the tree on which he hung, the cross. And my question to you this morning is, which one of those two atoms do you think is non-essential to the gospel message? And hopefully you've been able to make the connection this morning that you need both those atoms to make sense of the gospel message. Look at this. If there wasn't a literal good creation originally with a literal garden and a literal tree and a literal snake and a literal Adam and Eve who literally rebelled against God, if that didn't literally happen, why on earth did Jesus then die literally on a cross? What is the meaning of the last Adam, if there wasn't the literal first Adam? Can you see the connection? You see, Jesus' actions in history only make sense in the light of a literal first Adam's actions in history. Now, what we as an organization is not saying, we are not saying that, you know, if people don't believe in a literal creation account, they can't go to heaven. That's not what we are saying, because we believe it's through faith alone, in Christ alone, that we are saved by grace. But what we are saying is that there's a definite connection between a literal creation account and the gospel message. And unfortunately, there are millions of Christians today that's not making that connection. Unfortunately, the world is making that connection. The atheists, secular humanists. They're aware of the connection between a literal creation account and the gospel message. And you know, the world out there today knows the most effective way to attack and destroy Christianity today is to do what? It's not to attack Jesus Christ in the New Testament. No, the world knows that. They leave him alone. Guess which part of the Bible is currently being attacked the most by the world? It's the first few opening chapters of the Bible. Specifically, Genesis 1 to 11. Do you know why that is happening? It's because the world knows if it can sow doubt in people's minds concerning what the Bible teaches there, 
those people will doubt everything else they read further on in the Bible. And I've proven that to you at the beginning. For the past 60 years, it's been working brilliantly in America. The children in America do not believe in a literal creation account anymore. That's why when they reach the New Testament with all those miracles, they tell each other, you know what? That's not true. You can't walk on water. You can't change water into wine. It is scientifically impossible. Those are just stories. It's not true. And people, it's coming to a town near you. Actually, it's already 16 years in our high schools already. We are currently standing in front of a wave that is going to crash upon us if we don't do something about it. At least I believe we still have time to get equipped, get the answers, the message to our youth so that they can see, wow, what's written in the Bible is really true. And if you do proper scientific research, it actually confirms everything that's written in the Bible. Right, so let's summarize. What hopefully did you learn this morning? Hopefully you saw that we are currently being told lies by the world concerning the topic of origins. You know, we are being bombarded by the theory of evolution, which is directly contradictory to that literal six-day creation account in Genesis 1. Then hopefully you also saw today that science, and I'm specifically referring to those historical evolutionistic kind of sciences, that kind of science has become the ultimate authority for a lot of people today on earth. And according to that kind of science, the Bible has been disproven where? Genesis chapter 1 already. And according, because of that, today there's a huge increase in apostasy, specifically among young people worldwide. I mean, they don't even go to church anymore. They come to us with all the questions. You know, kids don't only go to the, the dominies, the ministers, the pastors. They come to us as parents, grandparents. They want to know from us. Dad, where did Cain get a wife? Mom, where do all the different races come from? Granddad, where do dinosaurs fit into the Bible? And if we can't give answers to those questions of our children, do you know what the kids do? Google. They're into the world. Why? Because kids are made by God to wanting to have answers to their questions. And if we don't give them answers, they're going to look for answers somewhere else. And the world is more than willing to give them answers, and the world will feed them with all the wrong information. And that's currently where the world is busy losing the youth. Hopefully you guys saw this morning that there, there are answers. There is an alternative for the theory of evolution, and it is biblical creation. But as I said in the beginning, again, unfortunately, not a lot of people are currently being exposed to this kind of information. And those four points led to the last one, and it is that the Bible got disconnected from reality for a lot of people today, specifically the book of Genesis. The world doesn't look at Genesis and see it as an historical document anymore. Now, of all 66 books in the Bible, can you maybe guess which Bible book is currently being attacked the most by the world? It's Genesis. Why? It's the first chapter in the Bible. That is our foundation. Everything else follows after Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. We build our whole Christian structure on this foundation of Genesis. And what happens to any building if you rip out the foundation? It tumbles. And even the psalmist knew this a couple of thousand years ago when he said, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? So you see, ladies and gentlemen, Christians don't realize how important the book of Genesis is to the rest of our Christian faith. Because if we can't trust the Bible there, where can we start to trust the Bible? And that's basically the words that Jesus told Nicodemus that evening he came to him in John 3. He said, Nicodemus, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Is it any wonder that people out there today that, that do not believe in a literal worldwide flood, people who do not believe in a literal six-day creation account, 
Is it any wonder they doubt things like a virgin conception? To be raised from the dead? Live forever? Scientifically impossible. Right, Cape Town, it is exam time. Do not look at the pastors. They are not going to take part. I'm going to ask you a couple of questions. Now you must be honest with me. I'm only going to ask you three questions. And I want to see who can give me the answer to all three of those questions. So I'm going to throw it on the board and then you must raise your hand if you have the answer to all three. More or less. I'm not going to ask you to give me the answers. I just want to see who knows the answers. First question. Who can tell me? Where did Cain get a wife? Right, that's the easy one. Second one. Who can tell me where do all the different so-called races come from if Paul says everybody goes back to Adam? Not Adam and Eve, to Adam. All human beings. How is that possible? And the last question, those dinosaurs, where do they fit into the Bible? Now, if you think you've got all three questions, more or less, quickly raise your hands for me, please. One, two, three. Cape Town? Okay, don't feel embarrassed. I promise you, right throughout South Africa and Namibia, it doesn't matter which congregation it is, always the same reaction it's just to show you it's questions like these that should be the reason that you get equipped with answers you know this morning go grab a book there at the back go read our free articles on the website and i promise you it's logical simple answers it's all written in the bible we just read straight over it so that we are ready specifically when the young people come to us oh my boy is very easy that's where cain got a wife that's where the races come from and there you find the dinosaurs that the kids will say what there's answers to these questions, and it makes logical sense. Hmm, maybe we should read the rest of the Bible, take it more seriously. Just think what a change that will bring to the youth. Now, to quickly come back to our magazine, of everything we've been giving out for the past more than 40 years, the magazine is by far the best resource that we have. And we know it's the, the best thing that we give out because people keep telling us that it is the best thing. Now, year after year after year. So what the magazine does is it looks at all these so-called evidences for evolution that you see every day on the TV, every day in the newspapers. And then from a scientific biblical perspective, our guys write easy to understand articles so that you can make sense of those kinds of evidences. We show you exactly how it actually better fits in with biblical history. And we show you all the weaknesses in the arguments of the evolutionists. And literally the biggest part of this presentation this morning comes directly just like this out of the magazine. So the magazine is really something that we always encourage people to get linked to. Because, you know, within a week or two, I think most of you will probably forget most of what I said here this morning. But the magazine is something that will come to your house quite frequently and keep you up to date with the latest things happening in the world concerning the topic of origins. And also over the years, we literally had thousands of life-changing testimonies from people due to the information they were exposed to in the magazine. And I promise you, this is one magazine that you will never in your life throw away because the information remains relevant. So keep it for your kids, keep it for your grandchildren, that's on the way. Now the magazine is a quarterly magazine, so there's only four issues every year, and you can subscribe every time for a year at a time, or for three years at a time. And as you can see, a three-year subscription works out a bit cheaper, and then literally for a few rand extra, if you also want it in digital format, you can get it, and then you will be able to download it onto five different electronic devices. So not only your devices, but your children's devices or your friends, families. You can subscribe for them for free every time for a year or for three years at a time. Now, you can also subscribe via our website at creation.com. But if you do that, you are going to miss out on a couple of free things. Now, the other day, I did a talk in, in Paul. 
And when the herd was coming to Cape Town, the one guy came to me and he said, yeah, Peter, you are not going to believe him, but the Capetonians are crazy about stuff that's for free. Now, I don't know if that is true, but if it is true, you're at the right spot today. Because if you subscribe for one year this morning, I will give you a free backdated magazine already this morning. And then if you subscribe for three years, you will also get uh, two DVDs for free. This one is called, Is Creation a Secondary Issue? And then the guy says, no, it's all about Jesus. It's by an Australian theologian, Dr. Martin Williams. And the second DVD is called Creation, Not Confusion. And as you can see, it is a two-part DVD. Now, the problem with South African, the postal service, is that it's not working. I don't know if it's working in Cape Town, but throughout South Africa, nobody wants to subscribe because they tell us we are not going to receive the magazine. So we have this option. If you don't want to take the chance to to order the physical magazine. You can only subscribe digitally this morning. So that works about out half price, but you're not going to get a free gift this morning because this coming week, the office will already send you the latest uh, creation magazine issue electronically. But what I do have is a lot of old magazines that I brought along with me. We sell it in packs of 10 at discount prices because people want the digital one, but they also want something physical to hold in their hand. So that option is also available. The form that we're going to circulate looks like this, and all you need to do is just indicate to me your option. This guy, for instance, wants the three-year physical, you know, snail mail magazine, plus the three-year digital option. So you just tick it off on the left, tick it off on the right, fill in your information, where we should send it to you if you want it, snail mail, telephone number, email address, and then you will see it's little tear of strips. So you have to tear that thing off this morning and bring it to me, please, this morning. Some of them, it, struggled to get, it struggles to get them off, but just fold it it'll come loose and then please bring that to me at the back and then you can come and pay and get your free gifts now if you only want it digital do not write the postal address for me there where it says address just write the one year digital or three years digital and then your email address of course and then I will sort you out at the back I do have a card machine at the back for payment and even our banking details are brought along on, on form. So if you want to take any of those books this morning, you're more than welcome to do it. I will give you our banking details, but then you must just promise to make the payment during the coming week. Right, so you can again circulate those forms as earlier, just down the rows to the back, please, while you are filling it in. I'm just quickly going to show you one or two things that you can expect to find in the magazine that's been published over the years. A lot of people tell us, okay, but if you say the earth is young, how is it possible that these rock layers could have formed rapidly? I mean, doesn't it take like millions of years for those things to be laid down? And then we tell people, no, if conditions are good, you can actually form things like that pretty rapidly. Up to that yellow line, it's about eight meters from where this person is standing. And those eight meters high sedimentary rock layers were deposited within three hours. Eight meters high. How do we know that? We actually observed it happening. Mount St. Helens, a volcano in North America that erupted in the 1980s. About a week before the eruption, there was a pyroclastic flow, which is basically hot gas and dust particles that got blown out of that mountain at 160 kilometers per hour. And within three hours, those dust particles settled down on that floodplain, and it formed eight meters high. And in the months after that, there were more of these pyroclastic eruptions, and there were areas where in total, they were laid down 200 meters high within a couple of months. So if conditions are good, you can form things like this pretty rapidly. Something else that can form pretty rapidly are canyons. This is, they refer to it as the Little Grand Canyon. It's one fortieth scale model of the, the real Grand Canyon. Grand Canyon. It also formed at Mount St. Helens. That canyon there is 40 meters deep, four zero. 
And the canyon on that picture is one day old. Now what happened there? The world teach us that the river down at a canyon, gradually over these millions of years, it carves that canyon out, one sand grain at a time, slowly, deeper and deeper. So the deeper the canyon is, the older the canyon is. But what happened there was, again at Mount St. Helens, one day high up on the mountain, there was a massive mudslide. Those water and mud rushed down the mountain. It ripped that canyon open 40 meters deep. By the evening, they took this picture with that little river running there at the bottom. So you see, there's two ways you can look at canyon formation. You can say, all right, what do I need? I need a little bit of water and lots of time. Or you can say, no, I need a lot of water and a little bit of time. And you will basically have the same end result. Then also over the years, literally thousands of man-made articles that we discovered that turned into solid rock. This was a soft uh, hat that a miner forgot in a mine, Australia, Tasmania, for 50 years. The mine was closed. When they went back into the mine after 50 years, they saw this hat lying in the mine water. When they picked it up, they realized it turned into a solid rock hat within 50 years as it absorbed the minerals out of the water. This is a fossilized bag of flour. That's just the flower that remained. The, the bag rotted away. And before it rotted away, it made such a good imp uh, imprint that the, the bag had a stitching pattern right around it, and it made an imprint right around that fossil. They found it in an abandoned mill in America. And then finally at the back of the table, you'll see there's a couple of books and things lying there. That's literally just our core resources that I always bring along with me. There's much more on the website creation.com, where you can order it there online. Our office is in Durbanville, so you can either go and pick it up there, or we will send it to you by means of courier, so you will definitely get hold of it. So if you get there to the table and you're thinking, man, there's so many good stuff here, what is the best? Undoubtedly, the Red Book. There's a whole stack of it. I've got more in the boxes underneath the table. 60 of the most asked questions that we've received over the past 40 years worldwide is answered in that one book. Where did Cain get a wife? Where did the races come from? Where do dinosaurs fit into the Bible? How did these radiometric dating methods work? And how did Noah get all the animals on the ark? What happened to the water after the flood? Where did God come from? Number one question children are asking us. Who made God? Such an easy answer to that. Next to it, you will see there's a pile of blue books. Now, this is, in fact, our most popular creation book of all times. It was written by our head scientist a couple of years ago, and he looked at all these so-called evidences for evolution. You know, like the missing links which are still missing, so-called whale evolution that happened, so-called human evolution, and one by one he shows you the weaknesses in those evolutionist arguments. And what I love about the Blue Book, it's the stuff that's currently being taught in grade 12 biology and first year BSc at university. So if you maybe some stage have children or think your kids are going to become doctors or whatever, that kind of direction, please then just get the Blue Book for them so that they don't go to university and go and lose their faith there. Now, if you're thinking, man, I should grab the red book and the blue book this morning, then I've got some great news for you. Because then you will get, <laughs> then you will get a free DVD. Now, I must say, if there's Afrikaans people, you can get this talk that I did. Yeah, you can download it then for free from our website. So just ask me if you want the English one or the Afrikaans one. And then for, for those of you who really want to go in depth, this is literally the Rolls Royce of creation books. It's an 800-page verse-by-verse commentary just on Genesis 1 to 11. So it's not only a theological commentary or a historical commentary, it is also a scientific commentary. And the author went back to the original Hebrew and first Greek translation of that part of the Bible. And then on our website, there's still DVDs that's phasing out, so it's really cheap. Just go buy the stuff there. 
Our website, just again, creation.com. Most of the things you can download or stream from our website, so we've also taken that route. On the website, you will see where in the world, literally, we are doing these presentations. If you zoom in on South Africa, it looks like this, and you will see these dates that will appear from time to time. So if you click on a date, it will show exactly in which town, which congregation, the date, the time, everything is there. So maybe if you've got friends or family in the vicinity of those towns where we are heading to, please phone them and encourage them to come and have a listen to us. Then they can bring their friends and family along to the talk and in such a way we can spread this message a bit further throughout South Africa. I'm also going once a year to Namibia in August from this year from Vintuk up to Rundu, the northern part. So those dates are, are busy appearing there. And then finally, I want to encourage you guys to go and visit our website and to read some of those articles from time to time. You know, literally, if it's only one article every week, not only to get answers to your questions, but to actually be better equipped to share the gospel message more effectively in the secular world that we live in. I'm ending off with a verse in Romans where Paul said, How are they to hear without someone preaching? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Right, so that's what I have to say. And I was told if it's before 11 o'clock, I can take a couple of questions. So I don't know if you have questions. Usually people are very scum. Yo, no, I'm not going to be a stupid question. But everybody always wants to know, where did Cain get a wife? So let me just see. There's, there's one here somewhere. Uh, English, there it is. All right. So if you have questions, anybody? Nobody? Where did Cain find a wife? Right, the answer is also in the red book. So if you can. <laughs> Number one question, right. You'll find the answer in Genesis 5 verse 4. But the reason why people don't read Genesis chapter 5 is because it's genealogies. This begot so and so and this guy was so old and this guy. and this. We just skip over that part. And also you have to read Genesis 1 to Genesis 5. Everything, but it's not in order. Things, it's not chronologically. You have to read the whole thing. The verse that, that throw people is in Genesis 4. When Cain killed Abel, he said, well, I will be a vagabond on the earth and everybody that finds me is going to kill me. And then people say, well, what's going on here? Oh, God made more people. Right, let's see what the Bible says. When we go to Acts, Paul said that, and God has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth. So even Paul knew everybody goes back to Adam. Even Eve came from Adam. So everybody goes to Adam and Eve, it's genetically proven all men go back to one man and all people go back to one woman. I believe it's Adam and Eve from the Bible. The atheists believe it's an ape man, an ape woman that lived two million years ago in Africa. So again, the same evidence, same data, but different interpre interpretations. And then it goes on. In Genesis 3, it says, And Adam called his wife's name Eve. Why? Because she was the mother of all living. Even he knew all people on earth will come from the two of them. But then we get to Genesis 4, and it says, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and named him Seth. Why? She said, For God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. So Seth was only born after Cain killed Abel. Seth was not the third child. The third child we know of. And now we get into the genealogies, because let's go and figure out, if we can see when Seth was born, that is when Cain killed Abel. Now, Genesis 5 verse 3 said, And Adam lived 130 years. That's real years, like our years. I mean, there was a dramatic decrease in lifespan after the flood. 
There's an answer for that also. So when he was 130 years old, he had a son in his likeness, in his own image, called him Seth. And then the next verse, look at what it says there. And after he begot Seth, the days of Adam were 800 years, and he had sons and what? Daughters. So who did the brothers marry originally? Sister, yes, Sisman. Now thankfully, things changed. So back in those days, it wasn't a problem. It's a genetic reason why we don't do it today anymore. Those laws were only given in the time of Moses, that close relation are not allowed to get married anymore. Those of you who are married, do you realize you actually married one of your relations? But thankfully, it's a distant relative, so no problem there. Now, Abram was married to Sarah, his half-sister. No indication that it was either sin or that Isaac was born with deformities. Because that's the reason. Originally, Adam and Eve had no mutations. That's mistakes in your gene code. No mutations. Perfect. But because of the curse, mutations crept into our gene code. And it gets passed along from one generation to the next. Anything between 60 and 100 new mistakes. Every generation. Currently, that's what we are observing in the laboratory. So by the time they reached Moses, God knew, these mutations are really bad. Close relations should rather stay away from each other. And then we have to go back to Genesis 4. And now it says when he got his, his curse, or his, his punishment from God, he said, I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth. And it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. Who was the people he was referring to? His brothers and sisters. They were out on revenge. You killed one of our brothers. Now we're going to get you. So Cain and Abel were the, definitely the first two children. Then Adam and Eve had lots of other children for 130 years. After 130 years, only then did Cain kill Abel. The next child that was born was a boy. She called him Seth. And then it says Cain took himself a wife and he moved to the land not. So he probably married one of his sisters. Does it make sense? Of course it does. Next question. Who? Say Who's the first guy in the Bible who was allowed to eat meat? Who knows? It was Noah. When he got off the ark, what did God tell Noah? He said, um, the fear and the dread of you will now be in all the animals. Everything that moves from now on will be food for you. As I gave you the plants, you are allowed to eat them. And then, of course, he built an altar, made sacrifices there, and that's, of course, the official date of Breidach. Started right there. Best command in the Bible. Now you can eat meat. So it was literally for 1,656 years they were not allowed to eat meat. Only plant material. So it is fine today. You are allowed to eat meat. Right. Next question. Nobody? Yes, this hand. Say again. Thank you. Um, no, sir, I'm just curious about your interpretation of the rainbow and how it was given as a sign. As in, was, were there clouds before? Or was it not a thing? Or, yeah. So there at the creation week, when God planted the garden, um, it says that it didn't rain on the earth and a mist came up from the ocean away and it watered the garden. But that's only has to do with the garden during the creation week, that part. Because now people think, okay, but it didn't rain on the earth until the days of Noah. So there was no rainbow because after the floods, it was the first time it rained, the first time they saw a rainbow. So that's the logic after it. Now, we actually clung to that, but we let go of that like 20, 30 years ago already. Our interpretation is now we think there was, was a normal um, hydrological cycle, you know, evaporation, condensation, it rained. So there were rainbows before the flood, but after the flood, 
God said, from now on, the rainbow will be a sign for you of my promise that I will never flood the earth again. The same with bread and wine. Before um, Jesus did the Last Supper, you know, there were bread and wine on earth, but he said, from now on, when you use it, think of my body and my blood. From now on, it will be a sign for that. So, no, we, we think it's just logical. It would have rained before, before um, Noah's flood on the earth. Yeah. But there was a hand at the back, and then I'll get to you. I don't know. Oh, can you get it? Okay. Yes, right. Let's have a look. I've actually I've got a picture that they took there at the ark, I think, somewhere. Uh, I see all the other. Oh, there it is. It has to do with an ice age. So let's answer that question then also. All right. The primary source of the rain with the flood, what was the primary source of water for the flood? It's not 40 days and 40 nights of rain. No, what does the Bible say? Look at it. The first part of that says that in the 600th year of Noah's life, all the fountains of the great deep were broken up. And then it says it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. So that was the primary source of water. It came from underneath the earth. And then the Bible says after 150 days, God closed those fountains. So after five months, the water rose for five months continuously. And only after that, he closed it. Two months later, the ark um, stranded on Ararat, and five months later, they were allowed to get off. So they were on the ark for a year and 10 days. When I ask the question, how long were they on the ark? 40 days and 40 nights. No, it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. They were in the ark for more than a year. So now it works like this. There's a psalm, this one, that refers to the creation week, but we think the same kind of mechanism that God used after the flood, where it says that um, after, when God, on day three, there was only water on the earth, and then on day three, it said he gathered the waters together at one spot and the land came forth. So we believe there was one continental shelf. We don't have a problem with that. And this is probably how we did it. In Psalms, it says that the mountains rose, the valley sank down to a place which you appointed for them. So with the creation, day three, God rose the continents and the mountains were together in one spot. And I think, we think he used the same mechanism after the flood. So after the flood, the water started going down, erased the continents above the water. There's actually canyons in the ocean that if you throw Mount Everest in there, it will not stick out. That's how deep it is. They actually did the calculations. Our guys, if you take the earth, you take all the water and you put it somewhere there in the sky and you flatten the earth, all the continents, like a ping pong ball, tafel tennis ball, like it's smooth, round, and you put all of that water that's on the surface today back on that earth, you will have an ocean worldwide that's 2.7 kilometers deep. So if you want to know what happened to the flood water after the flood, it's still in the ocean. Every time you swim, you literally swim in Noah's flood water. God just rose the continents afterwards higher than the water. Right, but now we believe also an ice age set in. It works like this. All that warm thermal water came from underneath, massive volcanic eruptions that threw a lot of dust into the sky also. So after the flood, when they got off the ark, you sit with a warm ocean and cold continents because the sun cannot shine on those continents. And with our computer models, they actually worked it out that that ice age reached its peak after 500 years, and then 200 years later, it came to an end. So maximum of 700 years. So we believe there was an ice age, one ice age. Not the whole earth was covered with ice, just much further south that the ice sheets came. 
So we believe there was an ice age like this. So when it reached its absolute peak, all the fluid water, all that evaporation, all of it condenses over these cold continents in the form of snow and ice. And those build up and build up and build up. And now your ocean levels drop. And now there are land bridges. And you can walk from one island to the next. Even the secular scientists say that the ocean levels, levels were at some stage very low so that people walked across the Bering Strait from Russia to Alaska. Even the secular scientists believe that. So now you have all these low water levels. After 500 years, the ash began to go out of the atmosphere. The sun could penetrate much better through. The continents got hotter and hotter. Ice and snow started to melt. It ran back into the oceans and the ocean levels rose again. And that's why those people, like the Aborigines, those people, when they reached Australia, they couldn't come back after five, six, seven hundred years. And then it's very interesting. What is the oldest book in the Bible? Probably the oldest book. It's the book of Job. And we think Job actually experienced the Ice Age. It's the first time that ice and snow in a frozen ocean is mentioned in the Bible. It's during the time of Job. And he lived, we think, a couple of hundred years after the flood, the time of Abram. Look at what he said. He said, from the chamber of the south comes the whirlwind, and cold from the scattering winds of the north. By the breath of God, ice is given, and the broad waters are frozen. Referring to the ocean. Next verse, or the other one, it says, From whose womb comes the ice, and the frost of heaven? Who gives it birth? The waters harden like stone, and the surface of the deep is frozen. So we think he actually observed the ice age back in his day. So that's just the answer there. It's in the red book as well. The whole thing of continental drift, they actually let go of that uh, model. It's not the best model today on Earth. The one that they're currently using is catastrophic plate tectonics. It was set forth by one of our guys. He used supercomputers to come up with this model, and he used the flood as the mechanism which triggered that one continental shelf to break apart with all this volcanic eruption and underwater fountains that squirted out. And according to his model, within the year of the flood, very quickly did those continents move into their current position. So they are still moving today, but very little. But that's nothing to do, you know, like they've been for 200 million years, they've been moving at that same rate. You can't say that. Because that's what people do. They measure the current rate, they measure the distance, they divide the two into each other and say, well, 200 million years ago, Africa split from South America. That's terrible science, brilliant mathematics, but were you sitting there for 200 million years taking notes and measurements? That's not science, that's just pure speculation. So that's basically the answer there. Right, it's 11 o'clock. No further questions, you must buy the Red Book. Thank you so much, Peter. Um, maybe, maybe, could you comment in one minute? I think this will also be very valuable. We've got a lot of teachers in our congregation and, uh, and possibly some children in high school. And you are a high school biology... I used to be one. Used now to I'm be. A, now I'm a homeschooler. Okay. 